How Well Trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined always by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you again. And you, Jared. Paul, loads of stuff to get through this week. But before we get started, it's really important to say this is recorded on the 26th of February. So things may change, as always, in Brexit land. This month, we've got a lot coming up. We've got interviews with former MP Mark Durgan, who are going to reflect on the chaos at Westminster. We also have interviews with Emma D'Souza and Anthony Suarez on the impact of Brexit on human rights. And finally, our Brexit question features back again. And this month, we're going to have a question on cross-border free travel after Brexit and what might happen. But first, an update from Westminster, Paul. A lot happening. Absolutely. Things change every day, as you say, Gerard. Well, it now looks as if Brexit itself will not happen on the 29th of March. Mm -hmm. Uh, Theresa May has agreed that if her withdrawal agreement is not approved in the middle of March, then MPs will be given two new votes. The first of those is to take place on the 13th of March, and that will be to allow the House of Commons to decide if it wishes to leave the European Union without a deal. If that motion is not passed, and we can assume it's not going to be, the MPs will be given a vote to delay the exit. And that's where we don't leave at the end of March. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn has announced that if Labour's preferred option of a Brexit which contains continued UK membership of a customs union with the EU is rejected, as that's likely as well, then it will put forward a resolution proposing a second referendum. That referendum would give voters a choice between the deal negotiated by the Prime Minister and not leaving the European Union. While there is no certainty around these votes, just as not really been any certainty about anything for the last two years, <laughs> it's now expected that the House of Commons will reject Labour's proposal to stay in the customs union. It will reject Labour's proposal for a second referendum. It will reject the option of leaving the European Union without a deal and will agree, therefore, to an extension of the leave date. It mm. now looks likely that Brexit will take place sometime this year, perhaps in June. The issue is that if it's extended beyond June, it would be necessary for the UK to participate in the European parliamentary elections. Uh, now, the real problem with that is not simply that it's messy. It's also prospective wipeout to both of the Conservative and Labour candidates, and probably that Nigel Farage's new Brexit party would, you know, perhaps not sweep the board, but actually do very well. And neither of the two main parties want that. No. So that's really where we're up to now. So it looks as if we'll probably be staying in the European Union until June. And the backstop, where does that sit? Where does the border in Ireland sit? What, what's the update on that? Well, there's still really very little clarity because the Prime Minister is still demanding that the European Commission will change and the European Commission is still saying, well, actually, it's the UK that's caused the problem, so it has to change. We had what was called the Malthouse Compromise, uh, but uh, that, while that was backed by the House of Commons. It doesn't really mean very much and it looks as if the government's pretty well ignoring that. I mean, because the Malthouse Compromise was saying, well, Let's just say that the backstop is a short-term device until we've got a technological solution. Now, you know, listeners need to be aware that we had a, a, a mid-term additional Brexit, mm. Brexit podcast with Gregory Campbell. And, and, and Gregory pretty well confirmed that uh, in that special Brexit podcast that there is as yet no technological solution. Uh, so it doesn't really take us anywhere forward. Uh, the underlying problem is that the backstop infers a continued UK-EU close relationship, uh, membership of the customs union and some close relationship with the single market. Yeah. And the people who are most keen on Brexit 
don't want that. They want the freedom to negotiate new trade deals, and also they want Northern Ireland to be part of those trading deals, not subject to a continued relationship with the European Union, uh, which might be with a new customs union or relationship with a single market. So basically, the backstop still creates a problem, and even though we're going to apparently stay on for an additional period of time, we don't actually have insight a new arrangement for the withdrawal agreement. Okay, and we're starting to see now how Brexit might have an impact on a number of different sectors, the first of which we're going to talk about is the food sector. Yeah, Michael Gove, Agricultural Secretary, um, who obviously was a very keen Brexiteer, has indicated that if the UK leaves the EU without a deal, then tariffs will be imposed on food imports that's necessary because otherwise the food sector would be really very badly damaged by brexit Mm -hmm. but the problem with that is firstly it will put up food costs in the supermarket quite substantially and secondly for the irish agricultural industry which is very dependent on exports to the uk that will be very damaging and we can also guess it'll be very damaging to a lot of local businesses here in the northwest of ireland that operate on a cross-border basis Mm. so this is all pretty messy and pretty difficult if that actually is what happens meanwhile we've got the impact of brexit on a lot of other sectors in particular manufacturing um now we've just seen the annual manufacturing report and that reported that 71 percent of uk manufacturers claim that brexit is damaging their ability to strategically plan and for their business prospects while 65 percent of these manufacturers think that brexit will cause chaos Hmm. according to the report (laughs) for the sector this year and we're beginning to see that with the decisions of nissan and honda to focus investment outside the uk and we've also had the threats from airbus now of course we need to say make clear the decisions of both nissan and honda are not just about brexit and they're probably not even mostly about brexit but they will be influenced by Brexit. Mm. There are also responses to the EU's new free trade agreement with Japan, which assists those companies to focus investment on Japan. And it's also about the fact that the the existing industrial bases they've got in the UK are focused on the old technologies, diesel and also petrol engine vehicles, and the future is with electric vehicles. So all these things play into it. But it has to be said, the risk of car exports from the UK to the EU being subject to a 10% tariff will have been considered. We've seen the impact of Brexit, given as one of the factors recently close to home with the collapse of Fly BME and difficulties people have flying between London and Derry. Absolutely, yes. Fly BMI has collapsed. Um, it's now being replaced by Logan Air, which is actually a sister company. But yeah, Fly BMI were clear. They said Brexit was one of the main factors causing its uh, inability to continue to operate. It said effectively that it wasn't winning contracts with EU airlines because the EU airlines did not have confidence that Fly BMI would be able to continue to operate flying into EU territory after Brexit. So that was one of the main things. Another thing was that fuel costs have got much higher, and part of the reason for that is the devaluation of sterling after the Brexit referendum. So that's having to pay more for fuel. And then the third thing is a bit technical, but it's because it has to buy carbon credits because it emits carbon as part of flying, obviously. And previously, it has been a member of the EU's emissions trading scheme. Now, once we leave the EU, it will have to buy carbon credits where previously he got them free so basically all these things together has caused a lot of difficulty now the other thing gerard is there's another local impact which is to do with 
a company called uh, MJM. It's based in Newry. And it was MJM that won the bid to take over the Bally Kelly airfield site. And it was going to be doing a refurbishment uh, of major transport operations there. But MJM has warned now that Brexit may persuade it to switch its future investment focus to Poland. Okay. So that's another issue. The start at DC is becoming a wee bit clearer about the financial sector and how they might move after Brexit. Yeah, I mean, Dublin, if any listeners have been down to Dublin recently, they'll know that the city is absolutely booming. And mm. one of the factors, one of the reasons why it's booming is that a number of international banks have moved their operating bases or some of their operating bases out of London over to Dublin. Now, one of the biggest is Bank of America. Bank of America, listen to these figures. It's spending $400 million to move $50 billion worth of assets over to Dublin, from London to Dublin. Mm. That will be an operating base for 800 people in Dublin, in addition to which it will have a new 500-person operating base in Paris. And that is the result of Brexit. And that has to be felt. It has to be felt in London, but it definitely will be felt in Dublin as well. Absolutely, and it is. It's, it's feeding into the growth, the continued growth of property prices in Dublin. It's becoming more expensive and more yeah. difficult than ever to get housing in Dublin. Aye. But, but despite all this, employment seems to be going up here. Yeah, that's right. But it's not being seen sufficiently in uh, wages figures. But yes, the, the economy is growing slowly. Um, it's not doing too well across the Eurozone either. Mm. Um, and of course, for civil servants in Northern Ireland, it's, it's a good time dealing with Brexit because they get a, a bonus mm. if, if they're doing well. Uh, and that follows a similar arrangement in London. So, you know, it's good news for some people. Aye, that's it. Okay. The Highwell Podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Now you've been speaking to someone famous as well, haven't you, Gerard? Well, a couple of people. Um, I At the start of February, I was asked as part of a a cohort of people representing the community and voluntary sector to go and meet with uh, Theresa May and Karen Bradley and to tell them what the sector feels about Brexit. And I suppose it was an interesting conversation, summed up really well in a tweet later on that evening by Andrew McCracken, who's the chief executive of the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, where he summed up the issues that we talked about. And they're dead simple. Um, They were, the, the DUP does not speak for Northern Ireland that a no-deal Brexit is bad for Northern Ireland, as goes without saying, I think, that Brexit is increasing community tensions here, and that more innovative and broader nuanced participation in democracy models must be tried to try and get us through the Brexit, such as citizens' assemblies and things like that. And then other things that were talked about at the table I was at are border implications and the challenges of uh, distancing ourselves from our neighbours across borders and breaking down um, the natural hinterland that we have. And then Peace Plus concerns were also talked about and Theresa May dealt with that directly and said, look, there's a commitment to peace no matter what, uh, be it no deal or whatever, it, the Peace Plus will go ahead. So it was an interesting meeting. Uh, it's I, great to get the opportunity. And Andrew, and you may well have had some impact on it because her language changed after that meeting in terms of being much more considerate about the impact on Northern Ireland. Mm. Oh, well, there you go. I'll take all the credit <laughs> if there's any credit going. <laughs> OK, so 
this month, Paul, we've got three interviews. Uh, first person that you met uh, that we're going to hear from is Mark Dorgan. What was it Mark was talking about? Yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to, to ask Mark, as a, a long-standing former MP, what he thought about all the chaos that's going on in Westminster. Mark had some interesting observations, as you can hear now. It's bewildering in some respects. Uh, in one sense, you're frustrated by what's going on, the things that aren't being said, the things that are going unanswered. Uh, at another level, you're almost uh, relieved that you're not in the middle of such uh, madness. And even when I visited Westminster recently and was talking to uh, some former colleagues, you just had a sense that an awful lot of them were jaded while they have their own very fixed views and their own very strong ideas. Uh, they are actually just punch drunk uh, at this stage. Uh, the number of procedural diversions and wrangles and issues they're in. Uh, the number of votes and counter votes that there appear to be, you know, so the fact that people outside Parliament are trying to read into what is and isn't uh, going on on different uh, shifts and tendencies, uh, and it's just as confusing for those uh, inside as well. And of course, that's no way to be conducting uh, serious business uh, that goes to the heart of the future of society, uh, the economy. Uh, and just the future nature uh, of politics. So it's a sense in Westminster, I mean, I looked at one of those days recently whenever you had uh, the whole series of votes that were going to take place and it struck me this is going to be like a penalty shootout where nobody scores and it's almost as though Parliament is now reduced to uh, a form of scratch card where it's a matter of saying do you get enough coincidence uh, around enough things and, and even if you do that may not be for a meaningful prize. And what do you expect ultimately to be the outcome in terms of Brexit? Well, way last year when somebody was asking me about this, I said uh, things are going to get worse before they get worse and then there will be fudge and then it'll take us a few years uh, to find out and it probably will be uh, in the negotiation of uh, the future relationship uh, that we will really uh, find out where things uh, lie. That will include finding out where things lie within uh, UK politics, because I think an awful lot of the uncertainty uh, is UK politics hasn't come to its own settlement yet, particularly within uh, the Tory party and uh, the Labour party. So I think we will nearly have to wait some settlement there. Um, is, is it going to be a deal or no deal? Uh, I have a sense that it will be a scrambled uh, fudge of a deal that some people will say has some of the elements that are as bad uh, as no deal and other people will say uh, it proves that no deal wouldn't have been much uh, worse anyway and that the real issue uh, was always going to fall to the negotiation of future uh, relationships uh, anyway. Uh, we also then have to see where European politics uh, is going to be uh, after this because while the EU system and the way the EU27 has worked, has been able to fixate and have a stance around the negotiation methodology of Brexit. Uh, of course, that may not hold once Brexit uh, happens in whatever terms it does, in whatever form it does. An awful lot of member states who are already uh, moving their eyes well beyond Brexit issues and have other major concerns uh, of their own, uh, a lot of them may take a very different and, and quite indifferent uh, view of some of these things. And so I think there's challenges uh, there for those of us who have been very good in the context of the island of Ireland issues to see the solidarity of the EU27. We have to realise that uh, that may not be able to sustain itself and manifest itself in exactly the same way as we go into the issues around the future relationships. 
I, I, you've made some very important points there. The first of which is that the Eurozone is in economic crisis, so therefore the European Union will be in difficulty for some time. And you add to that the fact that we've seen an effect over the recent days, the breakup of the two major political parties in England. The Conservative Party is having uh, almost a permanent secondary party within itself, the European Research Group, operating as its own whipped party within the Conservative Party. And we have the Labour Party breaking up because members of the Labour Party have now left, MPs have now left. So in effect, even if we now get within the next few days a deal uh, based around Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, that does not end the uncertainty. And we can expect actually, as things unwind in terms of implementing Brexit, there will be continued difficulties in the government getting a majority in the House of Commons. Uh, yes, because people are going to, no matter what the terms of the deal are, uh, some people are going to try to usurp those terms. Some people are going to try to take some of them more in one direction. Others are just going to try to undermine them completely. So the rats are still going to be eaten away uh, at this. And, of course, that uh, uncertainty then will be the spectacle uh, that Europe sees. Meanwhile, uh, Europe... Uh, in terms of the EU27 are going to have many uh, of their own uh, challenges and some of those may well manifest themselves even in the European election results where you see uh, again uh, a sense that there's going to be a strong showing in some countries uh, for some populist tendencies, maybe not some of those that surfaced in previous elections but again because uh, of the way in which some of these issues are changing in Europe, some of these uh, populist groups are kind of morphing uh, already, which actually just adds to the uncertainty, uh, in a sense, and is clearly having an impact uh, on some of the parties there. Obviously, some of the social democratic parties, uh, who haven't been faring as, as, as well as someone like me would want to see them uh, do, uh, some of them have been responding to those populist tendencies uh, in uh, what I would regard as, as very unfavourable uh, terms and very questionable terms. So, will they be trying to make sure that uh, the priority for their national politics is going to be making sure that the EU27 uh, holds well and holds strong in, in relation to a lot of the issues that are going to be washed through for Brexit. Uh, it is just hard to see. We need to see too what the new personnel in the EU27, we have significant change of personnel uh, coming up and that could well uh, mark uh, a change in attitude. Some in the UK might say, well, this creates a chance to get a relationship off on a new footing. Uh, depending uh, on Brexit, that they're, they're now in a new context with a new cast of players. Uh, but of course that adds to uh, uncertainty uh, for Ireland and Ireland will need to make sure that the kind of very strong diplomatic hand uh, that it has played in relation to Brexit to date uh, continues. But uh, they're not dealing with the exact same mix uh, of factors there and we have to be realistic. Uh, about that and we need to be purposeful uh, about that. So for our point of view here, we need to be thinking through what was it all along that we were trying to uh, protect in terms of offset the worst possible effects uh, of Brexit? What is it we're trying to uh, move forward in terms of in ensuring what we can uh, do uh, positively uh, in the context of Brexit's uh, challenges? And we need to refactor those uh, into uh, a clear stance for what we want out of the future relationships. And that's not just the future relationships between the UK and the EU, but at a local level here, we need to be seeing how far does that mean that we can have the machinery of government of the Good Friday uh, Agreement used as the router for those future relationships.
uh, Mark Durgan there. Thanks to Mark, as always, for taking part. You met with Anthony Suarez. Anthony ran a workshop here on behalf of the Centre for Cross-Border Studies, and by here, I mean on the Hollywell Trust Building, um, on Brexit and the Good Friday Agreement. I suppose there's continued anxieties there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Brexit clearly has created community, additional community tensions. It's made the community relationships worse with mm-hmm. unionists and uh, nationalist Republicans, you know, blaming each other. And there are anxieties. This is why it's really interesting. There are anxieties on both sides of the divide in terms of how Brexit affects the, the result of the Good Friday Agreement. So on one hand, we have David Trimble, the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, who was one of the leaders who negotiated the Good Friday Agreement, he is taking a legal case against the UK government, arguing that the withdrawal agreement, in effect, changes Northern Ireland's legal status and constitutional relationship with the rest of the UK, and therefore therefore breaches the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. Now, we hear on this podcast arguments from the other side saying, both Anthony Suarez and Emma D'Souza say, basically that Brexit negatively affects the rights of people born in Northern Ireland who have opted for Irish citizens to the avail of their full rights as Irish people. So Brexit has had these impacts on both sides of the divide, if you'd like to put it that way. Mm. And we're going to hear from Anthony first. I think that the Good Friday Agreement in some circles has come to be seen as a thorn in people's sides, as in an obstacle, an impediment to a smooth path to a different future. But that would be to really ignore the fact that the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement, um, the UK and Ireland were both the co-guarantors of that that agreement and and it established the relations not just within Northern Ireland between the two major communities but also the relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and between the island of Ireland and Scotland, England and Wales also Isle of Man and Channel Islands mustn't forget those and it was really about the totality of relations within and between these these islands that the Good Friday Agreement didn't necessarily establish but kind of cemented and gave a spur to and gave a a, a positive uh, future to and the, the question of the UK's decision to, to leave the EU, it does represent a challenge to how the Good Friday Agreement functions in, in the future uh, in terms of not necessarily, uh, to, to be pedantic about it, not necessarily about the UK's decision to leave the EU, it's what happens the second after the UK has left the EU. That's where the, the challenges really will, will, will perhaps appear in terms of how the Good Friday Agreement operates. It's what will be the UK's future relation with the EU. That is what is going to, to perhaps present the challenges to the Good Friday ag- Agreement. Perhaps it's the, the lack of clarity about some aspects of the Good Friday Agreement and the lack of implementation of some aspects because we heard in the last podcast from Professor Colin Harvey of Queen's University who's made the point that there's a lot of things that uh, have not been clarified because, for example, the common travel area isn't as yet in law and there's a lack of certainty about what being an Irish citizen who is born in the UK within Northern Ireland actually means in practice. I mean, do you think that that's a a view uh, is correct? I I think it it is. I think 
the, the question of the UK's withdrawal from the EU has really shone a light on aspects of our lives and our relations our relations as peoples, as communities within and between these islands that uh, we haven't necessarily had to, 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 to tackle in this way. We, there's been some, a certain ambiguity about our identities and how our identities relate to one another that have been able to function because the EU has provided that, that, that overall framework that allows for that, 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 kind of, that kind of fluid relations or interrelations within and between peoples that now, because the UK is leaving the EU, we have to kind of now cement certain identities, cement the way that certain relations uh, work going forward, and that is really what is causing a, a crisis uh, and is causing consternation amongst uh, some of our politicians and communities, uh, particularly communities living in border areas. So does that mean that we need to revisit the Good Friday Agreement in the light of Brexit and actually sort of, if you like, um, trim off some of the rough edges of it? I think it's a question of, uh, uh, and that is actually why I'm here in the Hollywell Trust today, is bringing the agreement home to people, to remind people when, for example, the UK and the European Commission talk about not undermining the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, what exactly are all of, it, of the agreement's parts. It's reminding ourselves of what, of what that, that agreement uh, is. Uh, not what it was, it, it's what it is. It is an ongoing agreement. It's a process that began in 1998 and is still ongoing. Uh, so it really is reminding ourselves of what, what, what that is, particularly perhaps for some uh, politicians who refer to the Good Friday Agreement but not, don't necessarily understand what the Good Friday Agreement is in all of its parts. And it's also a matter of politicians of whatever stripe not bringing the Good Friday Agreement into, in, in, into the discussion in terms of, uh, of, of declaring that one particular aspect of the negotiations or the UK's withdrawal is undermining a particular part of the Good Friday Agreement. It has to be how does that withdrawal affect all of the parts of the Good Friday Agreement. We can't be picky about which parts of the Good Friday Agreement we want to, to safeguard going forward. It has to be the totality of the Good Friday Agreement. So your message really to politicians in Northern Ireland, in London, in Dublin and to the public as a whole is the need to read the Good Friday Agreement, to understand it and to honour it. Absolutely, to read it, to understand it and to understand how not just, and I'm not, not just calling on politicians in, 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 in Stormont uh, or in, in Westminster or in, in, in Dublin, it's also to politicians who sit in Holyrood and sit in the Welsh Assembly. They are also part of the Good Friday Agreement. Is reminding them to look at the Good Friday Agreement and what does it say about how all of us relate within and between these islands. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Highwell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page. Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Okay, as Anthony Suarez there, and he had the chance to chat to Emma D'Souza. She's got a really interesting case. That's right. Uh, Emma um, spoke at a recent event at uh, the Rathmore Centre. She was uh, explaining her case about uh, disputed citizenship. 
uh, and her difficulty in getting her husband to be able to live with her with settled status. And what we also now know in terms of the longer term impact of Brexit on the Good Friday Agreement and what we thought we understood in terms of the rights that people had to determine their Irish citizenship having been born in Northern Ireland. Anyway, Emma explains it better than I can, so we can okay. Emma now. Well, we're hearing a lot um, at the moment about this fear uh, that we could become second-class citizens post-Brexit. And my personal um, experience and personal view is that we already are second-class citizens. I am an Irish citizen born in Northern Ireland, an Irish passport holder, Irish under the Good Friday Agreement, or so I thought. Um, for the last four years... I've been in a legal wrangle uh, with the British Home Office who have insisted that I'm British by birth, irrespective of my choice under the Good Friday Agreement, a choice you just alluded to there, the fact that we can be Irish or British or both, and that um, until I either accept that I'm British, um, renounce being British, um, or um, go through as British, I cannot be accepted as just an Irish citizen. And that means, in effect, you can't bring your American husband over to live in Northern Ireland with the full rights that you expected him to have. Exactly. So um, as an Irish citizen, an EU citizen, I have the EU right uh, to bring in my non-EU uh, husband who is American. Little did I know uh, when I met my husband and fell in love and we decided to settle down here in Northern Ireland that I would get this window um, into my rights as an Irish citizen and this uh, awakening that uh, the rights I thought I had um, I actually don't have it all. Um, so that has been something that we've had to come to terms with. Now, for a lot of listeners, it will be obvious why you've chosen to be an Irish citizen and not to be a British citizen. But just, you know, put it on the record. I have to say I didn't choose to be an Irish citizen. Um, I am an Irish citizen. And it's not even about citizenship. It's about identity. Um, it's my identity and I have held it my whole life. You know, I met my husband and I was like, hi, you know, I'm I'm Irish. And uh that is the basis. It's a core fundamental part of who I am. And this experience that I went through where I've essentially had my identity questioned by a government department has been really surreal for us. Um, and it has felt like that, a questioning, like it's somehow secondary or the wrong choice that I decided to be Irish under the Good Friday Agreement. And in reality, you think you have that choice, but it seems like we don't have a choice at all. Now, one option that you could adopt is to renounce your British citizenship, but you've chosen not to do that. Can you explain why you've chosen not to do that? Well, for a start, the uh, renunciation process begins with a declaration. So it starts with, I am a British citizen. And again, I'm an Irish citizen. So for me to fill in this legal document that states the opposite um, was not something that seemed reasonable for me to have to go through. And you have to bear in mind that identity, you know, was a huge part of the Good Friday Agreement and it was a huge part of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And respecting identity is essential, it's fundamental. So to have to go through the process of saying I have British, um, a British citizenship, British identity, um, was just not acceptable for me. But more than that, renunciation comes with all kinds of questions. Um, we did look at it. We considered it. Of course, we considered all our options because we had no freedom of movement. We couldn't leave the country. What we were going through was horrendous. Um, but if I was to renounce, then I'd have the declaration. I'd have to pay £372 to do it. I would lose my passport for six months where they would restrict my freedom of movement. 
And then the real kicker is that I could end up having to apply for a visa or under the settlement scheme or some sort of immigration control and lose my right to remain in Northern Ireland. Now, the case is locked in courts proceedings. So give us an update on where you are in terms of the legal proceedings. Uh, We are in limbo at the moment. We have... um, as I said, four years now we've been at this. Uh, we've been successful twice. So the uh, first ruling was that I am an Irish national, Irish under the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the second decision was that this was upheld and the Home Office uh, appeal was denied because there was no error in law made. However, the department is persistent in this case. Um, they took us back to court again last November and we were all ready for it because it's a long journey and we would like to get some movement going with this. Um, but they turned up well-armed with lots of barristers and asked for an adjournment. Now, the adjournment is just a postponement. So as if we hadn't waited long enough, now we have to wait another six months um, for the next hearing. I anticipate maybe April or May, but that's going to be after Brexit, um, which I believe could be a factor in it in itself. Um, But worryingly, in this process, we have seen the department um, come out with some interesting language that questions their commitments under the Good Friday Agreement in the first place. So they're saying things like, you know, Her Majesty's government does not have to um, adhere to an international treaty and that uh, the Good Friday Agreement cannot supersede domestic legislation. And in the court documents have criticized the judge's ruling state and that he cannot force the government to adhere to their commitments. So crazy stuff. And what this illustrates is the fact that there were things that were understood from the Good Friday Agreement which were never clarified into law, never spelt out in law, and you're one of the people that's trying to basically clarify and to demand your rights under the Good Friday Agreement. That's it. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement, you know, 1998, here we are now in 2019, and it still hasn't been fully implemented. You know, there's huge parts of the agreement that have not been brought into domestic UK law. And a part of that is this uh, entitlement to be Irish or British or both. Now, the Irish government did legislate um, in 2005 and changed their nationality laws. So we have an entitlement to be Irish. And that's very important here because what we have in Northern Ireland is unique. And we do have an entitlement. And we should be entitled to be Irish, entitled to be British, entitled to be both, not forced to be one Um, whether we want to or not, which is what's happening with the British Home Office. The fact that they did not amend their own nationality law, the British Nationality Act 1981, I do think is a huge factor in in what we're experiencing right now. And I think the only way we're going to see any real change is through legislation. Now, Professor Colin Harvey spoke about your case in one of the previous Brexit podcasts, and your case has reached even higher ears now because uh, Prime Minister Theresa May has referred to it specifically, but actually that hasn't as yet clarified or resolved the situation. Yes, I mean, uh, it was quite a moment to have uh, it acknowledged in the first place that there is a problem because there is a problem and it has a very serious impact on people's lives here. Um, something that could be even worse um, in Brexit, especially if we have a no deal. Um, but what does that um, actually mean? You know, what does her pledge to urgently review these issues mean? Because it's now been a few weeks and we have had no resolution. We have no time frame. We have no idea what the review entails. We have no idea when we will have any answers uh, from the department. In fact, uh, when speaking to the Home Office, they just stated that uh, they would not be doing a running commentary Um, of what was going on. And in the meantime, I have myself been talking to plenty of hopeful families that have pending court hearings themselves or 
need to go through the renunciation process or generally are just really stressed and under a lot of you know, fear and anxiety and, and uh, you know, don't know what to do about their status and are waiting to hear what is going to come from what she said. Thank you to Emma for taking the time to explain the case. It's very, very interesting. So, Paul, Brexit questions are back. Um, you've had a question around free travel on public transport beyond Brexit. I've been contacted by a couple of listeners uh, who've raised the question about whether Brexit will have any impact on the existing cross-border travel arrangements, free travel on public transport. Uh, the over 65s are able to have free public transport uh, in the Republic of Ireland as well as Northern Ireland at present. And I have been asking the authorities in both the North and the South as to whether that will continue after Brexit. The good news is that uh, after a series of inquiries, I've managed to establish that actually this is a bilateral scheme and there are no intentions to change this after Brexit. So the good news is that people over 65 will continue to be able to travel free of charge, not only on things like the Enterprise Line and the cross-border bus services, but also on public transport free of charge in the Republic of Ireland. Those arrangements will not be affected by Brexit. So that's good news. Well, that's us for this month. Paul's monthly Brexit blog will be in the Derry Journal this week on Friday the 1st of March, and it will also be available on Hollywell Trust's new and updated website, thank God they see it, uh, from the same date. So hollywelltrust.com or derryjournal.com, I believe it is, or social media outlets. Just remains for me to say thanks to all our contributors, to Mark, Anthony, Emma, and of course to Paul, and thanks to must also go to D. Curran for production support. And we'll talk to you again next month. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.